Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and yes, in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, monsters that lurk under your bed or deep in the forest, that unknown creature lurking just out of sight, some frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, or even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we're looking into some bizarre alien stuff. I know, because you're like me, and it's always aliens, right? (laughs) All right. Well, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, is yours, my darlings, so choose your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say alien, that's going to be a single shot, and every time I say space, that's going to be a double shot. Alright, we've got that business end out of the way, and we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma and some creepy and mind-bogglingly weird alien encounters yes i had to say that slow because i'm a little bit tipsy today and that's a weird word to say now before we jump into today's topic proper i want to cover a little bit of terminology and a system of classification for what we consider a close encounter and i know you guys know this but you know there might be one of two one or two of you out there that may not know this so we're going to do a little terminology it's going to be like less than a minute so it's going to be super fast The terminology and system of classification behind uh, the close encounter was first suggested in astronomer and UFO researcher J. Allen Hynek's 1972 book, The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry, because J. Allen Hynek is the mothership, so to speak. (laughs) Categories beyond Hynek's original three have been added by others, but have not gained universal acceptance mainly because they lack the same scientific rigor that Hynek himself aimed to bring to ufology. Now, Hynek's device six-fold classification for UFO sightings, and they are arranged according to, prox- to increasing proximity. So, when we say close encounters of the first, second, or third, this is what we're talking about. So, the first is nocturnal lights. That means lights of the night sky that you cannot identify. Easy, right? Step two is daylight disks. These are UFOs that are seen in the daytime that generally have a discoidal or oval shape to them. Step three is radar or visual. These are UFO reports that have radar confirmation. These supposedly try to offer harder evidence that the objects are actually real, although radar propagation can be occasionally discredited due to atmospheric propagation anomalies. Keep that in mind. All right, then we have the official close encounters of the first kind. The first kind is a visual sighting of a UFO, unidentified flying object, seemingly less than 500 feet away. 
that shows an appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. That's right. You got to be able to make out the shape, dude. Sorry. Close Encounters of the Second Kind is a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, a physiological effect such as paralysis or heat and discomfort in the witness, or some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorched or otherwise, affected vegetation or a chemical trace. All right. So we got first kind of seeing it. Second kind is having some evidence to it. Then we have close encounters of the third kind. And no, I'm not talking about the movie. Well, maybe I am. UFO encounters in which an animated entity is present. These would include humanoids, robots, and humans who seem to be occupants or pilots of a UFO. All right. Now, I'm going to segue into a second section here that is not official. But UFO researcher Ted Blosher proposed six subtypes for the third, the close encounter of the third kind in Heineck's scale. And they're really easy. He just added A, B, C, D, E, and F. So A, and they're easy, A would be aboard. An entity is, is observed only inside the UFO. B stands for both. An entity is observed both inside and outside the UFO. C would be close, that an entity is observed near to a UFO, but not going in or out of it. D is direct, an entity is observed, no UFOs are seen by the observer, but UFO activity has been reported in the area at the same time. E is excluded, that's an entity is observed, but no UFOs are seen and no UFO activity has been reported in the area at that time. And then F is frequency. No entity or UFOs are observed, but the subject experiences some sort of intelligent communication. That one's a little vague for me, but I understand why he added it. And as I stated before, there have been extensions to Hynek's scale, which of course the first, second, and third. So of course we all know close encounters of the fourth kind, which is a UFO event in which a human is abducted by a UFO or its occupants. We have close encounters of the fifth kind, which is a UFO event that involves direct communication between aliens and humans and is described as bilateral contact experiences through conscious, voluntary, and proactive human-initiated cooperative communication with extraterrestrial intelligence. I know you guys are impressed that I did not screw that whole sentence up because I am just way too tipsy for this. Anyways. Close Encounters of the Sixth Kind is death of a human or animal associated with a UFO sighting or intrusion and parasitic attachment by extraterrestrial consciousness. And lastly, we have Close Encounters of the Seventh Kind, which you knew this one was coming. The creation of a human-alien hybrid, either by sexual reproduction or by artificial scientific methods. All right, now I felt it was warranted that we should go through the steps and everybody understands what close encounters are the first second third are scientific scientifically objective i also added in what is accepted by normal ufologists this this fourth fifth and sixth not so much although they are gaining traction so i added those on so that way you guys would know them now we can jump into today's actual episode now, accounts of close encounters of the third kind, in which human beings are directly confronted with alleged beings from another world, are by nature already quite bizarre and otherworldly enough as it is. 
There's no denying that this is an area that is pushed out and stretched against the boundaries of the strange and then some. Yet there are some cases among these that truly rocket us out into the outer fringes of the surreal and the truly disturbingly weird. From space goblins to floating brains to amorphous blobs from beyond and spacemen that can fit into the palm of your hand, today we're going to be looking at some of the strangest of the strange, the weirdest of the weird, because you know that's what I love when it comes to supposed contact with aliens from another world, because we all know Nicole's motto, it's always aliens. One of the earliest, weirdest, and indeed most famous account that seems almost too bizarre to even possibly be true is an infamous case of what has become known as the Hopkinsville Goblins. The story begins at a remote rural farmhouse in the wilds of Christian County, Kentucky, an old Madisonville road near the town of Hopkinsville, on the night of August 21st, 1955. On this quiet evening, the Sutton family had a guest over by the name of Billy Ray Taylor, as well as his wife, June, and at some point Taylor went outside to get some water from the well at around sundown. As he made his way to the well, he allegedly saw a bizarre sight in the air above, which looked like a streaking light that was spewing multicolored sparks and flames all over the place. I'm going to pause for a moment there and go, moonshine. That's all I'm going to say. The light passed overhead and then seemed to drop down into a nearby gully around 300 yards away, after which the humid night was infused with an eldritch glow and the startled Taylor ran back to the safety of the house, because, you know, when you see shit like that, you run. He's a smart man. Once inside, he excitedly told everybody about what he had just seen. But at the time, nobody really believed him, and they thought that he was probably just messing around, despite his obvious fear and insistence that he'd really seen what he saw. However skeptical the rest of the family was, they would soon have a change of heart when the dog began to start barking wildly at some unseen trespasser outside in the dark. Yeah, because you might not believe your friends, but you always believe your dog. Looking outside, it was noticed that what was at first thought to be just a faint light that was seemingly bobbing about and approaching the house... And as it drew closer, it was found to be one of the strangest looking creatures anybody present had ever seen or even imagined. There, hovering in the air, was a small, glowing humanoid figure around three feet in height, wearing a metallic suit of some sort. It was described as having greenish skin, bulging eyes, and an oversized bald head with bat-like ears and a large, lipless mouth that stretched between them. The body was thin, and its arms were long, tapered, and spider-like, tipped with what looked like talons. The frightened Suttons quickly did the human thing, gathering up a rifle and shotgun as the thing hovered around outside. And when it got close enough, well, you know what happened then. That's right. Because if we don't know what you are, we're going to shoot you. And they fired upon it. Although they thought they'd hit it, the creature merely flipped over and retreated into the shadows. Shortly after this, the head of another, either the same creature or possibly another, peeked in through one of the windows. 
prompting another volley of fire that once again failed to do any noticeable damage to whatever it was, merely blowing out the window in a spray of shards of glass as the strange little monster ran off. Curious as to whether they had hurt the thing or not, Taylor and the Sutton father, John Charlie Sutton, warily crept outside, guns at the ready, and took a furtive glance around. At first there was nothing, but then Taylor let out a scream as a clawed hand purportedly reached down from the eave of the back door and grabbed at his head. Managing to gain a fistful of hair as Sutton dragged his friend back inside and slammed the door. The oldest Sutton's son, 24-year-old Lucky Sutton, I want to know how he got that name, don't you? He then opened the door to take a pot shot at the roof with a shotgun, after which the creature floated down to the ground, apparently unhurt, and, well, scampered off. Because, you know, they've already shot at these things like three times, and they haven't hit them once, but, you know, whatever. As bizarre and terrifying as all this was, there soon appeared other entities similar in appearance to the original one that they had seen out in the night, and it became apparent that they were under siege by a whole group of these creatures, an estimated 10 to 15 of them. For the next three hours, the sounds of the rural Kentucky night were punctuated by the staccato blare of gunfire as the mysterious floating monsters made passes at the house as the family cowered within and took shots at them. For the most part, the bullets whizzing out into the murk either failed to hit their mark or were ineffectual with the few that did hit occasionally letting out metallic pings like a coin hitting a metal bucket as if the creatures were made of steel. All of this happened against the backdrop of a faint green haze glowing from somewhere in the distance, perhaps the location where the quote-unquote spaceship had gone down in the gully. Since the home had no phone service, again it's 1955 rural Kentucky, so no phone service, the family was at the mercy of the monsters looking outside unable to even call anybody for help, and slowly running out of ammunition, which I'm going to pause again and point out, they're in Kentucky, rural Kentucky, I don't care what year it is, they're never running out of ammunition. At some point, the activity died down, and the creature's relentless, seemingly aggressive, yet ultimately inscrutable passes at the house finally ceased. Seeing this as a chance to get out of there, the family and their guests piled into the cars and sped away towards town, where they promptly informed rather bemused police of what had happened to them. As skeptical as they were, officers nevertheless made their way out to the farm to take a look, but they found no sign of the reported goblin creatures other than the damage inflicted by all of the gunfire. In some accounts, Air Force personnel also came to the farm to investigate the strange occurrence, although it's unclear if they found anything of note. The police left without incident, and the family returned to their home. But soon after, a second attack would occur, as glowing faces began to bloom out of the darkness once again, much to their horror. Once again, the bizarre beasts came at the, firehouse, the farmhouse, floating about, popping up to peer into windows and scurrying around on the roof as the family once again opened fire. And this went on until dawn, when whatever the strange intruders were stalked off and this time did not return. From the very following day, the dramatic, spooky encounter was splashed all over the newspapers of the area, fanning out to become national news as reporters and the curious converged upon the farm. 
faced with reporters and monster hunters camping out on their property, hoping to see the creatures for themselves, and the relentless, never-ending media attention focused on them, the family finally sold the farm and moved away. And it seems like something out of a horror movie, just so incredibly dramatic and bizarre in nature, and it's remained one of the oddest UFO accounts ever. To this day, the Hopkinsville Goblin Incident has been picked apart and written of countless times, and has become one of the weirdest and most well-known alien encounters out there. What happened to these people, and what was it that came down to seemingly attack them? What did these things want? Were they ever even real at all? And if they were, then what were they? One thing does seem clear, though. They certainly seem to have not received the warmest welcome to Earth. Well, because again, if you go into rural America, we're going to shoot at you first. I mean, just how it is. Other such inexplicably bizarre alien encounter reports were made throughout the 1950s as well. In 1957, a retired teacher by the name of Mary Starr allegedly woke up in the middle of the night in her home in Old Saybrook, Connecticut in the U.S. to see a piercingly bright light outside of her bedroom window. The object was described as floating over her yard and seemed to be a large craft of some type with rectangular windows on its sides. Fascinated by what she was seeing, Starr then supposedly gazed into one of the windows and could see two decidedly bizarre entities moving about within, and they were about four feet tall. According to the witness, they had translucent cubes for heads, holding within them bright red cores, rubbery bodies that were like skirts, and handless appendages akin to tentacles. Because, again, it's always tentacles, guys. I love them. After a moment of observing the outlandish beings, the windows then apparently vanished as if they had never been there at all, and an antenna or protrusion of some sort came out of the craft, after which the whole thing began to glow before silently shooting straight up into the night sky. The following year, in 1958, there was a weird account from Sweden in which witnesses Stig Rydberg and Hans Gufsesen claimed to have been driving along a remote road through a thick fog at around 3 a.m. when they spotted a UFO measuring about 12 feet across and ringed by four jelly bags that were blue in color and which jump wildly about through the air around the main craft. As the two men stopped their car to look on at the unusual sight, the four entities then reportedly descended and attacked them, demonstrating some sort of suction power with which they grabbed the witnesses and began pulling them up to the craft. The two horrified witnesses claimed that they had tried to struggle to get away, but their arms and legs merely sank into bodies composed of gelatinous ooze that smelled like ether and burnt sausages. That is something I'm going to have to ponder for a moment. Ether and burnt sausages. Yeah, that is very visual. Anyways, somehow Rydberg managed to squirm free, after which he laid on the car horn, and this apparently startled the creatures enough for them to drop the other man and retreat into the ship, and to take off into the night at astronomical speeds. The two men would say that they felt sick for days after the encounter with the space blobs, and I'm guessing that they could smell burnt sausages all the time. I'm <laughs> just saying. 
The 1970s really brought a wealth of such incredibly bizarre apparent alien encounters, and some of the best of them are really from this era, because seriously, I'm just going to say it, pot. I'm just going to say it. Anyways, on August 19th, 1970, there was a curious encounter in the country of Malaysia. Oh, you know it's going to be good. On this day, six children were apparently playing in a forested area when a tiny UFO measuring around three feet across came down to land in a clearing, after which five miniature three-inch tall humanoids descended out of the vehicle wearing odd blue spacesuits and one in a yellow helmet adorned with spikes. I don't know about you, but I am so picturing Vikings right now. <laughs> Can't help it. The diminutive beings then marched over to a tree and seemed to be busying themselves with installing some sort of mechanical device to a tree. One of the kids apparently went over and tried to grab one of the little creatures, and it promptly shot at him with a ray gun, injuring his thigh. Interestingly, there have been many other such sightings of many UFOs and humanoid beings in Malaysia as well, and the witnesses are typically young children. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I would love to see a teeny tiny UFO with teeny tiny little aliens. How cool would that be? Anyways, that following year on August 17th of 1971, there was perhaps an even stranger alien encounter from Palos Verdes, California. Witnesses John Hodges and Pete Rodriguez were allegedly headed to their car at 2 a.m. when they saw off through the trees a faint, mysterious glow emanating from beyond. They got into their car, switched on the headlights, and there suspended in the beams of light from their vehicle were what they described as two large, bluish entities that looked just like disembodied human brains hovering right in the middle of the road and surrounded by clouds of vapor that seemed to cling to them. The larger one of the brains was described as having a prominent red eye set within it, and this is the one that began to move towards the vehicle for purposes unknown. Because when you got a big brain with a red eye coming at you, what do you do? That's right, that's right, my heathens, you run! <laughs> The two terrified men understandably got out of there as fast as they possibly could, and it was later noticed that they had two hours of missing time. In 1976, Hodges would undergo hypnotic regression after years of being plagued by nightmares and wondering what had happened to them on that lonely road. Under hypnosis, Hodges revealed that he had dropped Rodriguez off at home and arrived at his own home to find the larger brain waiting for him there, which had then telepathically spoken to him. He claimed that he had been taken into the brain's ship to some sort of control room where it was revealed that they were merely telepathic tools being used by other aliens, this time more akin to the gray aliens typically described in the more mainstream reports, although in this particular case they were seven feet tall, not teeny tiny. These master aliens then apparently showed Hodges various images of nuclear war and destruction as they explained that the human race has grown too powerful for its own good. It was also shown another planet that had been completely destroyed by another race that had met the same fate, and was admonished that humankind would be the instruments of their own fate, telling him, take the time to understand yourselves, the time draws near when you shall need to. I'm just going to say for an alien, weird way to talk. I'm just going to say, 
if you're an alien and you're trying to scare us to do the right thing, come down and say, you're going to blow your fucking cells off. Stop your shit. I'm just saying, be clear. Anyways. Hodges then says that he felt a potent buzzing sensation in the back of his head and found himself back in his own car. In the years after, he became convinced that these aliens had implanted him with what he called a translator cell and that he received frequent telepathic communications from them through this device, in which they made dire predictions such as an apocalyptic war in the Middle East and the future widespread use of nuclear weapons. Now, whether you think the story in its space brains has any truth to it at all or not, you have to admit it's pretty freaking weird, right? I don't know about you, floating brains. I'm just saying if you're going to be an alien and you're interested in us not blowing ourselves up, you need to be a little bit more clear. Stop being so vague. All right. Quite unusual is the encounter reported by Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, who, in October 11th of 1973, were fishing on the Pascagoula River in beautiful Mississippi. As they cast their lines out, they suddenly began to hear a series of strange hissing, whirring noises coming from behind them. When they turned around to look, they apparently came face to face with an egg-shaped spacecraft hovering over the river not far away, and a door then opened to regurgitate forth baffling creatures that really defy any, well, real classification. There, standing in the doorway of the craft, were three six-foot-tall beings with gray, leathery, wrinkled skin and thin, carrot-like protrusions jutting out of their heads. The hands and feet were said to be fused into pinchers, and the eyes and mouths were just slits. Just as they were reeling from the shock of seeing such a thing, the men realized that they had been somehow paralyzed by by an unseen force, which kept them glued to where they were. Yeah, it's called fear. Anyways, stuck as they were, the two witnesses made easy pickings for the bizarre aliens who plucked them up and dragged them aboard their unearthly vessel. Hickson would later claim that he was brought aboard the ship and brought to a room with a blinding light in which he was subjected to an examination by an oval-shaped robotic probe of some sort. After around 20 minutes, the two were deposited back onto the bank of the river and the mysterious craft floated away. Hickson then claimed that he had found Parker on the riverbank as well in a rather disheveled state, crying and praying to God. Well, I'm just going to say when you see something like that, that's probably something you're going to do too. The two went back to their car and sat there in shock for an undetermined amount of time before heading home. They would later contact the Kessler Air Force Base and the local sheriff with their bizarre tale, which went about well as, about as well as you would expect. No one really took the eyebrow-raising story seriously, but the whole case inevitably became splashed about local newspapers soon after. Because, you know, if you don't want to believe them, the best you can do is laugh at them. Hickson, in particular, went on to entertain questions on the matter and even helped publish a book about the whole incident called UFO Contact at Pascagoula. While Parker ducked out of the limelight and eventually moved out of state to avoid the constant media attention. For his part, Parker claimed that he had passed out at the beginning of the ordeal and only came to after it was over, and only recalled bits and pieces under hypnosis, so he didn't really remember much. The case was picked apart by some of the most eminent UFO researchers at the time, who, for the most part, agreed that the men at least really believed that what they had seen was real. The case of the Pascagoula aliens has since been met with a good amount of skepticism. 
It's been called everything from a shared hallucination to a flat-out lie, which has only been made more complicated by the fact that Hickson's account only seemed to get more and more bizarre and complex as time went on. It has been suggested that they had a shared imaginary experience, that they were drinking, or that they were just, you know, tripping balls on LSD at the time. But no one really knows what happened except the two witnesses themselves. So, let's choose to let them believe what they want to believe. Moving on, into 1977, there's the weird account of 19-year-old Lee Parrish, who on January 27th, 1977, claimed that he spied a rectangular UFO hovering in the sky before he was whisked into the air by a beam of light while driving home. He then found himself upon some sort of spacecraft, where he was presented to three very bizarre beings. One of the entities was described as being like a black tombstone, 20 feet high, with a robotic arm extending from its front. Another of the things was smaller and looked like a red prism of some kind, while yet another was six feet tall and described as being a motionless white prism with two robotic arms and a wedge-like head, which produced strange noises like teeth being brushed. I'm just going to say tripping balls on this one, but whatever. At the time, Lee had the strong feeling that the white one was the leader, although he did not know why he had this impression. During the encounter, the red one was seen as the most anxious, seemingly afraid of their human guest and hiding behind the others, although it did at one point extend a robotic-looking arm to try and touch him, which produced a vague, unsettling sensation of coldness and pain. Eventually, the three beings lined up and seemed to merge together, after which Lee felt a warm per a warmth permeate his body and soon found himself back in his vehicle along with 38 minutes of missing time and it's rather odd to say the very least of it i'm just saying moving on to 1977 we come to paciencia brazil where 33 year old bus driver antonia la rubia was allegedly walking to work when he spied a rather strange object shaped like an enormous wide hat sitting in a field Soon after he noticed the mysterious craft, it lashed out with a thin, bright beam of light, which caught La Rubia and whisked him away to a room of pure white. Within this room were various mechanical-looking beings with bright scales and arms like tentacles. Again, we have the tentacles, my darlings. As well as egg-shaped bodies and heads adorned with what appeared to be antennae. Instead of legs, the strange creatures reportedly sat upon rigid pedestals of some sort. After this initial meeting, the frightened La Rubia claims that he shouted at the creatures, which seemed to have the effect of making them cower in fear. He lost consciousness again, and when he woke, he says that he was now subjected to a series of images projected onto the wall, including various surreal scenes such as a dog being melted and a train entering a tunnel, the meaning of which could not be discerned. At one point during this screening of oddities and grotesqueries, one of the robot beings apparently reached out to draw blood from one of La Rubia's fingers, after which it splashed it across a wall to form a pattern of three circles and an L-shape. At this point, La Rubia claims he lost consciousness once more, and when he awoke, he was purportedly back in his car, vomiting and dizzy from the whole puzzling ordeal. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, moving on! <laughs> In Italy, the following year, there was a case of Pier Zanfretta of Italy. 
On December 6th of 1978, Zanfretta was working as a security guard doing his rounds when he apparently saw four bright lights approaching him. He went out to investigate with pistol drawn and saw that the source of the lights was reptilian beings standing 10 feet tall with green saggy looking skin, head adorned with spines and in place of a mouth a strange breathing apparatus. Upon noticing him, these entities purportedly shot out some sort of heat beam which sent Zanfretta running in terror. He would later be found by another security detail passed out on the ground. When the area was checked, there was there were found to be a series of large footprints imprinted into the ground and scorched branches in the trees, lending some credence to the dramatic story the witness would weave. Zanfredo would go on to outline several more encounters with the lizard-like beings in which he would be brought aboard their spacecraft and experimented on. They would also introduce themselves as being from the planet Titonia. During his last visitation in December of 1980, the alien supposedly brought him to a mothership fashioned of a crystalline substance and shown aliens resembling frogs, which were being held captive in tube-like structures, and which the reptile aliens claimed were an enemy species. Other captured alien spe specimens in the menagerie aboard the ship were shown as well, including bird-like creatures, tiny reptilian saurian beasts, and some sort of troglodyte that looks somewhat like a caveman. Well, these are just some of the weirdest reports of alien encounters that I've seen recently, but there are certainly so many more out there. So what exactly are we supposed to make of these cases? These are f creatures that do not fit at all into any traditional report of UFO occupants, and one wonders just what all this could mean. Are there different species or races? Something from another dimension? Are they shapeshifters that just take whatever form they want, regardless of how outlandish? Because, you know, if I was an alien and I was going to another planet, I would totally wear a costume to freak them out. I mean, I'm just saying. Or are these just the result of hallucination, psychosis, hoaxes, tall tales, or just the effects of drugs and alcohol? Whatever the answer to these questions might be, such insanely bizarre reports certainly add color to the already colorful world of close encounters, and hint that this is a phenomenon that is perhaps even stranger and more inscrutable than anyone can guess. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you so much for joining me here today, and I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about this. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And you know what? If you have a suggestion for a future show, or you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you want somebody to talk to, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time I have this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.